Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Resonance Test. I'm your host, Pete Chapin, from EPAM Continuum. Welcome to Kids MD Powered by Boston Children's. I can help if you ask about symptoms or medication dosing. Nope, that's not the emergency medical hologram doctor from Star Trek Voyager. It's actually a new voice-based program that people can use on Amazon's Alexa. By allowing parents to ask in their own homes about their children's symptoms and medications, they get immediate information regarding their children's care, and they're accessing it in a way that's natural, just by using their voice. Now, voice recognition technology certainly still needs some improvement, but it has a lot of potential to change the way we interact with doctors and hospitals. And that's just one of the healthcare innovations that today's guest has been involved with. Dr. John Brownstein is the Chief Innovation Officer at Boston Children's Hospital. After getting his PhD in epidemiology, which is the study of health outcomes and diseases in populations, Dr. Brownstein became interested in how our online behavior, like what we search for, what we post to social media, and so on, can help health officials predict and manage disease outbreaks. He's now leveraging this expertise into finding new ways to use digital technology to improve healthcare outcomes, like KidsMD on Alexa. Dr. Brownstein is here with EPAM Continuum's Ken Gordon, our Principal Communication Specialist, to talk more about why voice recognition is superior to a mobile app, why healthcare startups aren't always eager to work with children, and how getting Lyme disease was a career inflection point for him. Let's turn things over to them now. Okay, John, we are so glad to have you here. Welcome to the uh, Boston studio of EPAM Continuum. It's great to be here. It's, I know you had to travel across the, the city of Boston, which is not an easy uh, path to traverse. <laughs> you know, it's pretty cool. Now, you have an awesome title. You're the Chief Innovation Officer at Boston Children's Hospital. Um, I'm guessing you didn't grow up thinking, I want to be the Chief Innovation Officer. I would like to know a little bit, if you don't yeah. mind telling us, what is your journey? Can you yeah. sort of paint the portrait of, of how, how we got there? Absolutely. You sure. know, it's it's a fun title. It's not a title I aspired to, but I feel very lucky to have uh, this current title. And yeah, so I grew up in uh, Montreal. Mm-hmm. I was interested in medicine, like many people that were are in science and sort of going down this path. Mm-hmm. And then realized I had a bunch of sort of varying interests in, in, in uh, geography and computer science, mathematics, statistics. And was able to discover a field of sort of epidemiology and public health. We were sort of able to merge all these fields into thinking about health, but at the population level rather than the one-on-one level. And the fact mm-hmm. that you could affect change at huge impacts by thinking about emerging trends and disease and risk factors. That got me really uh, interested in sort of a different side of healthcare. As part of my PhD work, I was actually doing a lot of of field work uh, because my background is in infectious disease and we were trying to do things like collect ticks in the fields of of the Northeast. I actually got Lyme disease when I was collecting ticks um, as part of my PhD work and and was like, okay, you know what? I don't think I need to do any more field work. Uh, there's better ways to get data. And so I got really interested in sort of secondary use of, of data. Um, mm-hmm. It came to Boston, Harvard Medical School, Boston Children's, where there was huge amounts of opportunity to tap in to electronic medical record data and mm-hmm. derive huge insights from the wealth of information. But even that was constrictive uh, in that if you tap into one electronic medical record, you only have access to one. That's interoperability system. is Right, interoperability is a huge thing. So then we got interested in this idea of like, well, what's all the other data that's out there? Um, th- and we got 
thought to ourselves, the digital exhaust, so like the digital breadcrumbs we leave behind in our interaction with technology, mm -hmm. whether it's what we search for online, what we tweet about, what we like on Facebook, some portion of all that activity is healthcare related. It's health behaviors, sure. it's outcomes. So we sort of launched this field of, of the digital phenotype. Um, that whole area uh, is an active area of my research group at, at Boston Children's and Harvard Medical School. So I still maintain that. But as part of that work and ma managing a software team and really building new technologies to support our understanding of populations, got involved in spinning off a company and mm -hmm. started seeing the merger between academia and entrepreneurship and the opportunity to spin companies out from your research group. And about four years ago, um, the there was an opening around the innovation program and I realized I could help the hospital think about a better trajectory for its assets. You know, how do you have, you know, you have some know-how and mostly on the software and device side because with pharma, discovering a new molecule, there's already a sort of a very specific path. Right. But if you're building software, it's it's a very different beast. You can't just take a piece of code and license it to Google and hope that someone uses it. Right. You need to spend a lot of time sort of cultivating it, and often that means putting it into a startup. And so uh, we built a path to do this at the hospital, spin companies off, um, bring scalability to things that we're, that we're developing, both to support our own patients, but also think about, you know, the mission of the hospital, which is best in class pediatric care around the world. Absolutely. Um, but then also work with startups out there in the ecosystem that can really support our patients and, and help us drive our mission forward too. And so we have a broad set of activities ranging from work with startups to larger companies um, and all surrounding this idea that the future of the patient journey is going to be digital and the interactions that, that patients have are really going to be based on their, their interactions, whether it's you know, their mobile phones or their listening devices now in the mm -hmm. home. All of that interaction with healthcare is going to be completely different. And also the, the, the clinical practice is going to be very different, all enhanced by new technology. So Absolutely. All, everything that we do is really with that sort of future vision in mind. That's cool. Have you found there's a tension between the sort of startup mentality and sort of working with a, a big hospital, like an established hospital? I mean, I know we had Nick Doherty in here uh, a while ago. We're going to have him back, Great. but talking about the way sort of um, Mass Challenge Pulse sort of brings together the startup yeah. and, and the big sort of um, yeah. established players together. And I was wondering how they get along when you're when you're dealing with those two different kind of mindsets for you. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. We're actually part of Mass Challenge and excited mm -hmm. to be a partner there. But I think even without that, I mean, there is a real sense that um, we're not going to be able to sort of push the sort of the best possible state of, of healthcare delivery based on what we have internally. You know, there, right. there's just, you know, yes, we are Harvard teaching hospital, but Harvard can't build everything that to support its patients. It, it has to look outside and we have to collaborate. And part of that is with large enterprise companies, whether it's Google or GE, Amazon, um, but it's also going to be this massive burgeoning startup network that's that's really exciting. And I'm lucky enough that I've been sort of on the, on the academic side, the, the hospital administrative side, but then also on the startup side. And so we have this sort of view that all these players need to interact. And, and in fact, at the hospital level, there's been a huge amount of embracing of that, um, how to properly bring startups in and not crush them under the weight of bureaucracy, yeah. something that we, uh, we, we strive for every single day. 
That's cool. And one of the things that's interesting is like because you're working in healthcare in such a regulated environment, you've got to think about HIPAA, for example. But we've got some good news for you guys, right? You've just got the HIPAA, um, you know, compliant Alexa skills yeah. out. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? And it's an exciting new announcement that just came out, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so at the hospital, we've been really excited about voice technology for several years. In fact, we launched the first skill on the Alexa platform for healthcare. Um, called Kids MD. It was, but it was really in a bubble. So the idea was, you know, a, a tool to help parents ask questions for their kids about acute conditions, fever, rash, rash, cough, or dosing instructions. We've just turned on Alexa. It's sitting right, ne- it's right next to your head. It's, it's alive. Um, and the reality is, um, that was great that we could provide guidance because this now connected device in the home has this opportunity to be your like hub of medical know-how. Yeah. But the more that we can connect that back to your health system, the more it can be actually a richer personalized experience that can actually affect your care. But the the barrier to that was HIPAA compliance. Um, And we've been working with Amazon for a while now. We're part of this sort of invite only HIPAA Mm -hmm. program that allowed us sort of start experimenting with healthcare applications of Alexa. Mm -hmm. Ours was very specific. We have a recovery program post-cardiac surgery um, where we often use text messaging and other tools to engage patients to collect data about their sort of recovery journey and make sure that they're sort of on you know on progressing properly part of the you know opportunity is like well what are other modalities to do engagement Um, and voice is a natural one sure huge number of our patients already have an Alexa in the home these are quick ways to do things like logging of activity and appetite and pain scores. There's a way to check for future appointments. There's ways to do check-ins in a way that you couldn't do it before. And so, I mean, there's a huge number of other applications that, you know, you can dream up, but the first step is like, how do you start taking what we're already doing with other platforms like text message and bring it to a voice that's, you know, incredibly natural and flexible and easy to use. It's smart. It's so organic. It really makes sense for the, for the kids. Actually, it reminds me, I wrote a piece uh, not long ago about my worry that Alexa was teaching my kids how to command, how to use their voice to command. And it was giving them this power that was sort of not justifiable, in fact, possibly dangerous to them. You know, the idea of saying, give me this, and then receiving it immediately. And I worried a little bit about that. But then I read about the con- this context and the idea, like a kid who has been taken down a lot by a disease could really be, uh, you know, uh, empowered by this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I really think uh, that's probably the case. Have you seen yes, a sense absolutely. Well, of that? there's also the kids Alexa that encourages please and thank you. Yeah. Uh, that that came out after my to. article. You could look at it. It came in the Atlantic the day it was published. That was announced. So right. I don't so, know if I can take uh, uh, credit. But. <laughs> but but in general, yes, yeah. we think that voice, especially for patients, whether they're in the home or in the hospital, is very empowering, right? So sure. out of the box, you don't need a lot of training. There's not a, a massive barrier to, to entry into use. And so especially for, for patients that don't necessarily have quick use of their hands, or this right. is a convenience factor that's really incredible for our patient population. Yeah. Now, you work at a children's hospital. I was wondering, is are there any other sort of um, uh, barriers to innovation, specifically in a children's hospital setting apart from sort of the standard HIPAA things? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think sometimes uh, we're always having to work, uh, you know, 10 times harder than any, you know, to an adult hospital to, to get some of the innovations going. One, because the market is smaller. So to encourage startups right. to actually invest on the pediatric side is hard. There's some great 
startups that are doing it, but not everybody wants the, the pediatric use case to be their first use case. Mm-hmm. So we have to work, you know, harder to get people to, to, to listen. I can imagine. And then, yeah, and we have like more, com- there's more complicated um, interactions with technology because you have a guardian, a pa- parent that's accessing the, te- accessing the technology on the part of the patient. So there's a set of new tools and, and thought process around sort of access to information needs to be thought of. And so those are not necessarily sort of baseline use cases that vendors are working with. And so oftentimes we do have to customize in the, um, the environments we are. And we have spent a lot of time customizing in the EMR. The benefit, though, is that there's a lot of a big culture of innovation because there's this issue of needing to build to, to fit our population. So you'll see actually there's an amazing set of innovation programs across the, the country that are in pediatric hospitals. And I think partly because there's this need to build to the population because there's nothing works really out of the box. Mm-hmm. Also, there's not a, as much um, competition. There's actually a pretty good network of pediatric hospitals that are coming together to exchange ideas. And that makes for a really sort of great culture of innovation. So there's some some pros and cons That's to great. being in our environment. That's great. One of the things I, I like about your, your descriptions of your career is that you're you're into digital epidemiology, yeah. right? Yeah. And I, can we just talk about that a little yeah. bit? That as a, as a sort of practice yeah, and sort of what, sure. what, what that involves because it's yeah. a, it's a it's a it's a really interesting idea. I'd like yeah. to know more about. Yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. So. You know, uh, my background is in infectious disease, building technologies to track disease outbreaks around the world. And that's really was the sort of goal. Like, what do you do to identify the next Ebola outbreak or the next flu pandemic with technology? And so we built tools. We realized it's very hard to get governments to share data. Um, It's very hard to open up information. Like, for instance, during SARS, Chinese government wasn't necessarily forthcoming about what was taking place. But then we realized if we started mining the web... um, uh, news, local news media, chat rooms, blogs, and then eventually social media has this wealth of information about things happening on the ground that we start to mine that information um, and t- tag and categorize and filter and map. All of a sudden, we create this view of the world that has never been created before. And so we started that. Um, that was in like 2006. Um, and it got notoriety. It, we got funding from Google to build a platform that was essentially scraping you know, the universe of information is very Google-centric. Sure. Um, we helped build a tool actually with Google called Google Flu Trends, which was mining what people search for um, on Google right around flu. Sur- flu-related terms. Mm-hmm. Um, and this just sort of spurred a whole new area of, of research, not just infectious disease, chronic disease, health behaviors. And we sort of started co- coining this concept called the digital phenotype, this idea that all this information that streams from your interactions with technologies, whether it's on social media, right. your private searches, whether it's your um, your devices, all that collection of information is, is represents a huge opportunity around uh, understanding your own health and behaviors, but at the population level can give you insights about emerging trends um, in ways you couldn't imagine. And so we have you know, use cases like we have early identification of, of H1N1, uh, pandemic, Zika, Ebola, over and over again, these sources of data being incredibly valuable for our understanding of what's taking place in the world. That's awesome. We Not long ago, we had uh, Sunandini Chopra who, who, from uh, AI for the Rest of Us, and she was talking about how she sort of sees AI health, uh, the sort of predictive capabilities of AI in healthcare as being sort of parallel to those of those in meteorology. Yeah. 
and the idea exactly. of collecting that that you can understand the weather the way you can sort of uh, healthcare at the population level. exactly and, and, it and there's a whole field of, of disease forecasting that's taking it sort of lessons from uh, weather forecasting and so how do you develop predictions about the future of like a flu epidemic based on some of the same methodologies now it's much trickier sure. um, than the weather because there's it's 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 so multifactorial in terms of what drives a disease mm-hmm. and but there are some amazing modeling efforts that are going on some coming from our research group that's cool I'm, I'm curious about uh, your patients and your providers does anybody feel uneasy about sort of using Alexa to interact. I mean, we've heard about yeah. these stories where they record a bit of conversation and mail it to someone else across yeah. the world. Did there's definitely there's definitely some concerns. We've done surveys of, of physicians both internally and around the country, and you know, um, there's a variety. There's a lot of enthusiasm, but yes, there's a, definitely some concern about the reliability of the information, the privacy, um, and these are things that we take very seriously, and, and how we've really slowly started to think about use cases. We haven't done sort of massive enterprise-wide deployments of every possible use case. We're taking very specific use cases that have, you know, that are low risk and and getting people familiar with these opportunities before, you know, we start to really, you know, deploy these tools in, in a much bigger way. Mm-hmm. Have, you, have you done any sort of looking into how people feel about uh, using a voice assistant to sort of interact as part of their, their yeah. sort of medical it, it's, um, it's, apparatus. It's absolutely varied. And so our view on it is, you know, the smart uh, speakers are now, you know, represented over half of the households in the country now. Right. So there's definitely an appetite for these technologies. Mm-hmm. But our view isn't like, okay, now in order to get your access to information or to log your, your, your recovery, you need to use Alexa. Our view is like, if you have Alexa and you're using it, that probably means that it's convenient for you to use and you liked it. So we want to go to where patients are, you know, so we, we're not trying to like force someone to do something that's not natural for them. Yeah. You know, I, we, in our belief, you know, there was this, you know, 20 years ago, there was the advent of the patient portal and it's really hard to get people to engage and log in and, (laughs) and be part of that. Fast forward 10 years. So 10 years ago, and mobile apps, right? So it was app crazy. And Mm -hmm. in my view, at least, and I was part of it, we built a lot of apps. I mean, you're just basically taking a website and mobile optimizing it. You're still dealing with the same issues of login and adherence and engagement, right? Mm -hmm. Now, all of a sudden, currently, we have this this new phase, right, which is voice-enabled conversational assistance, Mm -hmm. whether it's text-based or voice. That's changing the game because it's sort of, it's all based on natural inter- interactions, right? Mm-hmm. Like what you do today. I use voice to communicate, so use voice to get the information that I need. And it's not, you don't need training, you don't need some deep understanding of how an app is going to work. It just, out of the box, you get how to communicate with it. And so, yes, this technology is going to get much better over time, mm-hmm. but currently it has some great use cases. It's, you know, those use cases will improve. Um, but in our view, it will be a big part of the way that care is delivered. So, access to information in the home, changing the way that physicians and patients engage with one another, right? Mm-hmm. So extracting that conversation and, and, and populating the EHR based on that conversation rather than the physician with their back to you. Right. All the opportunities and hands-free um, decision-making that need to happen in a healthcare environment, voice becomes this great opportunity. Now, it's not the only thing, yeah. but I think the use cases just are tremendous. Hmm. Have, you, have you read Eric Topol's new book, Deep Medicine? Have you seen that yet? Uh, we're, we're, there's a, some some of our work is in it actually. Oh yeah. Yeah. So um, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think he makes some great points 
about you know the future and practice of medicine that are very in line yeah i just remember the one part where he's talking about um voice assistance and he has a couple of dialogues yeah. and they were all kind of just not quite real enough right. and i was thinking i wonder how 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 long it'll be before we can have those sort of uh, realistic sounding conversation yeah. with the voice. No, absolutely. That you know, at this point, there's um, it's not a true conversation. Now, the there's technology that's emerging that's extracting conversations between two individuals and 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 using that um, that interaction. That's exciting. Sure. But yeah, I mean, these technologies are only going to get better over time, and so we're betting on that. And so the earlier we can develop and be on these platforms, we will benefit from, from that future uh, improvement. Awesome. So the last thing I have is, um, tell me of the following three things which you feel most strongly about. <laughs> Hot Peppers, Canada, or Wes Anderson movie. <laughs> That's amazing. You, you did some digging. Yeah, a little bit. Um, those are all very important to me. I guess my Canadian roots are, it's very hard to, to, to separate me from my, my love of... Uh, Canada okay. hockey winter sports. Which uh, what's better, Montreal Bagels or New York Bagels? I mean, I'm just kidding. I okay, it's obviously Montreal. <laughs> well, then you might as well tell me. I'd like to know more about this hot pepper thing because that's a little <laughs> less less clear. Uh, uh, you know, just um, you know, the, like any Canadian spicy food is uh, on the menu at every meal. No, um, <laughs> it's uh, you know, it's just a, a love of spice, and you know, the spicier the better. I guess it's some extreme for, sport in my mind, and. I'll walk in any hot sauce uh, store and sign whatever waiver they give me to try their hottest uh, sauce. So, so what's your favorite hot pepper? Are you a ghost pepper man? Yeah, but I think, it, you know, the ghost peppers that they have on menus now, they're downplaying it. It's not real ghost pepper. Try actually eating a real ghost pepper mm-hmm. and then see how you feel like three days later. It's uh, <laughs> it's, it's it's pain that you, you'll never forget. Well, you can report your symptoms uh, to, to Alexa and I'm sure she'll help. But I actually, I can't let this go. We have to know about this Wes Anderson thing. Oh, I so, mean. So are we going to tell me, where, where, what's, your, what's the best Wes Anderson? Anderson film for you? You know, I, I, it's probably not one that everybody agrees with, but it's uh, The Life Aquatic. Um, ah, Steve Zissou. Uh, Tell me why. Uh, you know, Pourquoi? I, yeah, there's the French, com- it's the, you know, the European yeah. connection, I guess, but no, I mean, huge Bill Murray fan. He's, you know, and he's front and center. Mm-hmm. It's just, uh, it's, you know, it was coming off uh, um, some some big movies, but, uh, you know, that one is, I think, is the most underappreciated and it's probably the best shot one, too, my view. Better than Rushmore? Uh, I love, you know, it's funny. I love them all. Bottle Rock is the first one. That's Bottle great. Bottle Rock too. is great. This is some good, well, this is great. This is the cinematic episode of The Resonance Test. And I thank you, John, uh, for joining us today. Great. And, uh, you know, we'll talk again. Great. Thank you so much. All right. EPAM Continuum is a global innovation design firm with studios in Boston, Milan, and Shanghai. At EPAM Continuum, we're very deliberate about the term innovation. For us, it means turning ideas into stuff that's real. Because from our perspective, ideas aren't really innovative until they exist. Thanks to Dr. John Brownstein and not Dr. Ken Gordon for their great conversation today. Cheers to Kip Palalis, our sound engineer extraordinaire, for getting this podcast recorded. Numerous appreciations to the aforementioned Ken Gordon, our producer, for all of his masterminding behind the scenes. I'm your host, Pete Chapin, and to our listeners, we thank you for your ears. Mm-hmm.